Okay, I'm Carl. I'm an alcoholic. My recovery date's August 22nd, 2014. I'm an alcoholic. My name's Steve. My sobriety date's February 7th, 2010. I'm an alcoholic. My name is Ellen, and my sobriety date is June 11th, 2013. I'm an alcoholic. My name's Alex, and my sobriety date is April 14th, 2012. Welcome to SoberPod. We would like to remind you that we on SoberPod cannot speak for or represent any outside recovery or 12-step groups. All opinions expressed on SoberPod are those of individuals expressing them whether they regret it or not. We are not addiction, health, or mental health professionals and strongly urge you to listen in moderation. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of SoberPod. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Today on the show, the new voice you heard, well, we have two new voices. We have Ellen joining us now, so officially a co-host. Yay! Yay. (laughs) uh, I love that we have the kids in here for the studio audience. They just love sobriety. And we also have Alex. Thank you for joining us, Alex. She's going to be our drinking and drugging career resume interview today. Woohoo! Yay! <laughs> Would you like to say hello to the listening dozens, Alex? Hello! Yay! To the one guy in Nova Scotia, Wisconsin, is that it? Is that, <laughs> is, does it even exist? I think Nova Scotia is like yeah. in Canada. I don't even know. He's really. drunk. He's drunk. Yeah, yeah, okay. He's drunk right now, though. He, yeah. said the sh- he said the show's better with a couple in him. You know, I, I imagine his name is Mike. Why is that? I just think it's Mike in Nova Scotia. I don't, I don't know if I've ever met a sober Mike, at least one that I believe. So, as you can also hear, Carl's back. He's been nice enough to join us again Yay! on the show. He started. Yay! The kids love Carl. How you doing, Carl? I'm good. No, really, Carl. <laughs> Carl's um, so uh, so is this is this like the um you know cuz you know I I just edited a, a podcast recently of worst footed uh episode number 15 right where you talk about yeah your worst footed so um you know and I just wanted to remind everybody that you know yeah you know, drinking beer and cigarette butts is fine and it's great and it sucks and you know it's awesome when you're drinking but how about when you're sober because you know we're not mm. the fucking best people you know I just had a guy lean over to me in a meeting last night it was a birthday meeting celebrating 4 years and he leans over to me, and he whispers in my ear. He goes, "I just want to remind you that everybody in this room is fucking crazy." And I'm just like, "Oh, you're right." You know, sorry for the bomb too. Yeah. So, um, so my worst footed. I'm gonna do a little segment, which my worst footed was um, two weeks ago. Uh, uh, you know, I, you know, everybody knows I've been through the fires and everything else, and you know, evacuations, and I was basically in my RV with my family. I did it all really well. I swear, I did. And um, I didn't like, you know, bitch, I didn't piss, I didn't yell at anybody, I didn't do anything. And I was like, you know, Halo was was shining. And then Absolutely. Um, and then uh <laughs> so I, I so I don't know, I go to I go to two meetings on a Tuesday night, a men's meeting and then I go to this other meeting. You know, I get out of there, it's about nine thirty at night, and it turns out they shut down the entire freeway from you know, from here to home basically, and I gotta go this redirection of another two miles out of my way I go this redirection but then they send me back and they also close that side down as I'm going through it I mean I just you know as far as I'm concerned you know this is my like this is my explosion moment like this is where like I'm sitting there in my car grabbing my steering wheel going it's not fucking fair right so I start loading it up and uh and and I'm looking at all these people around me here's a couple I had some really weird thoughts during this whole process too is uh I'm losing my fucking mind, right? I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I have a Jeep, right? And I'm thinking, like, I can just go down that fucking hill right now, like nobody, you know, 
Who's going to stop me? Right. What's weird about that? <laughs> right? and, so, and then the other side of it is um, I, I'm just losing my fucking mind and I'm just screaming out of my gourd. Excuse my cussing. I'm really trying to stop it, actually. Uh, but uh, can't you tell? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, Doing so, great so far. So, it's only been five minutes. <laughs> so as as I'm circling this bridge, this I just I, there's uh, these construction workers and you know guys on the road, and of course it's their fault. So I'm I, I rolled down my window and I'm like fuck you do your fucking jobs, <laughs> <laughs> just like this like, and then. I'm just so I go to like you know take off and you know go down the road a little bit more and this trailer pulls out in front of me I almost hit this trailer too and I'm like fucker you know this kind of stuff and I'm just going out and there's more construction workers and more and and I'm yelling even more so down I mean I am enraged I have never I haven't been this enraged in you know a couple of years at least but I'm fucking absolutely out of my mind and as I uh, as I get coned back into a one lane more construction zone i'm thinking how more unfair this is of me don't you know and so i'm like well fuck these cones so i just start hitting these cones with my car right and they're just, they're just like flipping over as i'm hitting them at just the right side you know so they're just like i could be in my rearview mirror i could see them floating every which way and all these people dodging them and i'm like you know what? I'm going to get arrested if I don't stop, right? <laughs> so this thought, but here's the other thing. As I was crossing the bridge before this all started, I'm like, what a fucking baby. I thought about myself. I'm like, what a fucking baby I am. And then I thought, well, what would I, you know, like if anybody else was in the car with me right now, I wouldn't be doing this shit. You know what I mean? But that's it. Like, you know, It'd be so amazing if you would, though. I know, right? Like, <laughs> You'd be the best Uber driver ever. What is it? <laughs> Where would you like to go? What is it with people in their cars? Like, they just instantly I, yeah. add rage and get behind you know, the but wheel? I have commuted to Irvine for 20 years of my life, right? So, and it's like, I mean, the only way I could really tolerate it some days was to say, when I'm done with this, I will be drunk. Right. You know, when I'm out of this car, I will be drunk. And that just was a really good way to deal with shit. And I remember being in sobriety. I was like, you know, coming down a hill and you know, it was all traffic, whatever. And I thought, I think I was like, I don't know, maybe 90 days. And a thought occurred to me. I was like, oh, yeah, when I get done with this, I'll be drunk. So and I was like, oh, shit, I won't be. So that is my worst footed moment for the last two weeks. There has been other conditions on top of all this stuff. Oh, absolutely. But I'm not going to bring it up because we don't have a. We don't have enough hard drive yeah, space to he cover. He shared with me yeah. off of air what those other conditions are, and it's just such a full-blown nightmare of nonsense. Like, I'd love it. I can't wait till we get more of that. So <laughs> yeah. let's all thank Carl for doing his Yay! best. Yay! Oh. So what we're really here for, though, is Alex. That's right. Oh, wait, right. but we should also mention you just took four years sober. Last oh, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> Congratulations, Carl. Talk about worst footage. Way to yeah, set yeah. an example for sobriety. <laughs> Yay! You know, that's a yeah. big deal, though. We all went to a meeting last night to see Carl take the four-year chip. He had an adorable bow tie on, and it was a, it was a great time. And makeup. And makeup. You were wearing makeup? <laughs> no, I wasn't. Oh. Are you kidding? Are you, are you even asking? No. I thought your worst footage was going to be you wore a bow tie. <laughs> no they, they didn't ask you to wear one then. that's right okay well uh so now we're back to our topic for the week and that would be alex and her drinking and drugging career uh resume so uh just in general thanks again for coming down and joining us alex uh we've actually i've myself and ellen have known alex for uh quite a few years now um, just some of her general information. So 
uh, Alex has been sober for five years. Five six re- years. Six years. Mm-hmm. Did you just take six? I took six in April. In April. Amazing. Damn. Yeah, we knew you right around the beginning. I'm, yep. I don't know how long into your sobriety I met you. Like day three. Like day three. <laughs> it's been interesting. Uh, but yeah, she's been sober for six years now. You were 14 when you got started drinking. What was your, uh, I'll steal one of Carl's go-to questions. What was your first drink? Do you remember? I oh, do. I thought you were going to ask her if she got laid. No. <laughs> no, no, separate show. Separate, separate show. Okay, that was separate my show. other questions. Yeah. My other questions. Where well, you got that kind right, of time? Sorry. All right, moving on. So my first drink, I was 14 years old. I was a freshman in high school, and I was ditching one of my classes with my friend early in the morning. And um, on our way back, we ran into another friend who had a bottle of tequila, and I had never drank before in my life. And I think that. Um, I became really good, which I'll talk about later, like that chameleon effect. I would do whatever it is that you wanted me to do to make you like me. And um, when we ran into him, he asked if we wanted a drink. And of course, I was going to say yes, because I needed you to like me. And um, I took that first drink and I had watched my family drink. And I thought I was under the impression that when you took that first drink, you just got drunk. And so I took that first shot and I didn't get drunk. So I took another one and another one. (laughs) And another one. And um, I came to in the back of a cop car and the police officer drove me back to school. I had alcohol poisoning. I threw up everywhere. One of my friends had like taken me in the bathroom. She said, if I hit you, it'll sober you up. So she beat the (laughs) shit out of me (laughs) in the principal's bathroom. And um, I got suspended for a week. And um, I remember my first day back at school. You know, I was a freaking hero. Like, everybody knew who I was. That's and I thought, <laughs> I thought it was amazing. So, um, yeah, I liked alcohol from the very beginning. How wow, that you? was right from the start. <laughs> yeah. No. First day. Yeah. Just, just a straight up, like, bottle of warm tequila the guy's just carrying around? I, I don't know. I We met oh, him behind a up. ditch. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Mixed That's with this. That's all good things happen great. behind a ditch. Yeah, like I knew I he had went to my school, but I didn't know who he was. But she seemed to know who he was. And, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Just a homeless guy she's met before. <laughs> no, I should have clarified. It was another kid at school. Uh, yeah. You don't see that in George Clooney's tequila commercial. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking amazing. God, that's so much more interesting than my first time drunk. Like, uh, so, and you got sober. So this this is another great reason. Like another reason we really wanted to have you on the show is you got sober really young. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, nineteen years old. And yeah. we'll get into more of that later. But now, as of course, you've been uh, sober for six years and four months. And let's get into your favorite drink because I love what you have listed <laughs> on here for the favorite drink of. The Sky Vodka, that one's not the abnormal one. The abnormal one is Mad Dog 2020. Oh, yeah. 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 So you were a middle-aged homeless man. Yeah. <laughs> she, I was she, a broke white girl, so that's what I got. Yeah. That's amazing. What was Mad Dog? Was that wine? It's kind of like a wine, I think. I know I had it when I was a kid. I had that and Thunderbird when I was a kid. Yeah. yeah. And then the juice. Yeah. Yeah. I remember yeah. hearing that a lot from like, he's he's no longer with us. So what? But Ray Ray back when yeah. we were all at the yeah. Serenity Club, he <laughs> talked about Mad Dog 2020 all the time. Um, but now that we've covered uh, just some of the general stuff, let's get into the part that I know I love about the drinking, drugging career thing. And that's our <laughs> disease skills and strengths. 
So which one would you like to kick us off with? Just uh, for you listeners out there, Ellen's going to go ahead and rattle off what we have on our list. So the skills and strengths of Alex is a chameleon, center of attention for good and for bad. I agree. Homicidal, suicidal rage. I'm afraid. Would, <laughs> would crush you to make myself feel better at any cost. Damn you. Blamed others for everything I did, never took responsibility. He did it. Abused self and others. Ow. <laughs> Pro at making myself not care about things that mattered. Alcohol-induced psychosis. Wow, that's like a diagnosis. <laughs> that's like DSM-5 material yeah, yeah, right yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> How and much is that worth on the insurance check? <laughs> extreme self-hate, inadequate perception of reality. Inadequate perception of reality. Mm-hmm. I know. Poor like I can't even, I can't even perceive my inadequacy. No, my perception yeah. of reality has low self-esteem. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a psych major. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I can't wait to get into it. So, Alex, which one of these, if you had to pick, would you say would be the first thing you'd lead off with to say that's my drinking in a nutshell right there? Ooh. Um, or just the one that jumps out at you. I think really it was the extreme self-hate and um, that inadequate perception of reality. Um, when I got sober, something that I could really hear in the beginning was people would talk about that self-delusion and um, it didn't matter. Like my, I was just living in a different reality than everybody else was. Like something would happen and the way that I would remember or perceive it was so vastly different mm-hmm. because nothing could be my fault because I already hated myself so much that... I couldn't take responsibility for anything because I was barely holding on. Can you give us an example? Do you remember any like specific? Because like when I hear you say that, it, it sounds like, all right, I did this thing. It's clear I did this thing. But when people point it out, I'm like, no, I can't take any more reason to hate myself. I'm already at my limit. I can't I can't go any further. Mm-hmm. Do you remember any like uh, instances where that was the case or what your reaction was? I think a lot of it was, uh, especially towards like the end of my drinking, I would get drunk and end up fighting people and hurting people or hurting myself. And I would wake up with bruises in the morning and people would ask me like, do you remember what you did last night? And I'd wake up, you know how you wake up in a house full of like six other people and you have no idea like what happened the night before? Yeah, I did it this oh, morning. <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> And, um, That's how Carl describes waking up at his yeah. house with his yeah. family. Yeah, I, I always have six people when I wake up. Man. <laughs> but I would remember waking up with bruises on me and people would ask me those questions. Like, do you remember what you did? And my answer was always no and don't tell me. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember like I'd see people like, you know, when you spot the person across the room who also has bruises and, you know, ooh, I probably did something I shouldn't have done. Or like there's part of you that I mean, I was a blackout drinker, but I would know when I woke up like who it was that I had fucking hurt. And that sucked, you know, and um, I was really good at completely avoiding whatever it was that I had done or talking about it because I just couldn't take feeling any worse than I did. I mean, that leads to a lot of isolation, too, even in yeah. your own existence. So, you know, I, I mean, me personally, like, you know, yeah, I, I would I would berate the kid or I'd talk shit or I would do it mm-hmm. in my own little environment, even in yeah. my own little family. Uh, but the next day, n- no, nobody talked about it. Right. Mm-hmm. But nobody like wanted to 
engage me any which way yeah just because of who i was like that so i yeah. can imagine that creates even even in your own environment you know even though these people are still around you all the time yeah. you know you still get pretty isolated just because sheer fact that nobody wants to deal with you so. yeah and alcohol what i thought alcohol was doing was making that better especially in the beginning you know because i didn't really care when i drank but i know that like i remember even being a kid and telling my mom that like I'd come home from school just crying and like believing that everybody hated me and she would just look at me like I don't understand how you feel this way about mm. yourself mm. you know and so I feel like drinking just kind of blew that up you know it was now everybody could see myself hate and the abuse and the destruction that I was causing huh. so is it more like um it allowed you to um it reflected your outsides and insides i think that's a probably a pretty accurate way of putting that yeah because when i drank like it was like an explosion would happen like anything that was harbored inside became visible to the outside and then i'd wake up in the morning and now like that deep dark secret of like how much i hate myself and all this self-loathing like the whole world could see it when i drank i get that i know toward the end i say toward the end but it's like the last two or three years of my drinking but I remember that like uh, violence was getting a little more common Mm -hmm. and like I never got in a straight up fight with anyone, but it wouldn't have been long until I did because I just had a, I just, you know, and I still do. I just have a fucking mouth on me and, you know, I just start, (laughs) I just start picking fights with people, but not picking a fight, just talking shit and I'm just better at it. And (laughs) it's only a matter of time before someone doesn't find that quite so charming and, you know, goes ahead and, uh. You know, smacks me upside the head mm-hmm. but um i can definitely relate to that because like as i got as things just got darker and the self-esteem went down and the self-worth went down and all that the worse that got the more uncontrollable i became once i was drunk yeah. and then the shit that happens just gets more and more it's just getting closer and closer to be turned up to 11 um so that's a that's a really good that's a really good one to kick off with so now that we've covered that one, uh, I'd like to ask you about, because this is your interview, to see if you are indeed an alcoholic. You're doing well so far. <laughs> yes. I would like to ask you, would crush you to make myself feel better at any cost? Mm. Mostly because at six <laughs> years sober, you literally use the word crush. So it's like, not I would defame you, not I would talk bad to you, but I would literally crush you. You're a heap of pile and bones and mess when I'm done with you. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? What does that mean? Have it like, And I love how, um, you know, Ellen had said this on her episode of be, about being an attention whore with, um, what was it? An social attention anxiety. Whore? Yeah, with social anxiety. But she's a high like, class attention <laughs> yeah. whore. Okay. Yeah. She's yeah, a high- I cost a lot, yeah. you guys. Yeah. She's a, she's a, after five years, I'll tell you, she's a high maintenance whore. For, uh, social whore. Social whore. For, I'll tell you that. He's much. still around. Yeah. Yep. No one else is in line to get this product, so. I remember hearing similarly when I had first came in, someone had said, like, I have um, a big ego with low self esteem. And that really encompassed how, especially, my drinking was. And I think that, like, I was just really good at being the mean girl, you know, um, because I couldn't value myself off of anything good I was doing. So instead of bringing myself up to your level, I had to bring you down to mine. I had to bring you into my world and make you feel just as shitty as I did. And I think that, you know, for most alcoholics, we're that master manipulator. And I was really good at getting to know you 
and being that chameleon so that I can make you like me and people would be vulnerable with me and then I would take those vulnerabilities and just completely use them against you to make mm. myself feel better. Mm. You're, you, are a, you are a time bomb. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. it just sounds like an awful person. Yeah. I mean, time bomb is another way to put that. <laughs> and just for, for you listeners, it may sound like, okay, what's the point of getting Get out? Get off this podcast. No. Yeah. What's the, <laughs> you fit in way too well. You <laughs> But it's like for you listeners out there, you might be wondering, well, why are you having Alex on to talk about these, you know, horrible parts of her drinking and, you know, personality when she was doing such like, and again, this isn't just for the sake of voyeurism. It's not just to create a train wreck. It's because in sobriety, (laughs) train wrecks are fun or cone wrecks if you're Carl on the freeway. (laughs) It's it's like the, the larger point is that, you know, now six years later, Alex is willing to actually talk about this in an open and honest way and that things have changed in sobriety. And that's, uh, that's how I'd follow up that question is how is just being aware of this, like is one thing that's already huge. Like in sobriety, just being aware, okay, I'm going to minimize others and insult others and exploit them so I can feel better about myself. But what about sobriety has changed that dynamic? What do you do now to not do that? I think that I mean just we kills talk- kittens. <laughs> <laughs> just kill the cat a day keeps the deal no, shit away. Crushes kittens. Oh, yeah, she crushes. I crush kittens. Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> it's on tape. It's on tape. <laughs> Things I never thought I'd say. Um, I think that a lot of that was you know coming in and getting sober. I was under this impression that if I got sober, then I would turn into this like princess of recovery, that if I could just stop drinking, then like all of that other stuff would go away. And I think, you know, you guys know that that didn't happen for a while. Um, I came in and I was still super angry and um, I kept doing, you know, one, two, three, switch sponsors, one, two, three, switch sponsors, one, two, three, switch sponsors. And like that, that self hate, not and hate for others, like it was just overflowing kind of and um I think that when I was finally broken enough sober to be willing to do that moral inventory and really look at what's happening within me and get down to cause and conditions I was able to accept this idea of like something greater than me restoring me to sanity that loved me enough to look at my defects of character and say hey, why don't you let me take this? And in the meantime, like continue working these steps. And through that, I think I found this really awesome space of being able to begin to accept that um, that, I'm, that I'm human, you know? And um, as that self-hate began to kind of simmer out and um, that relationship with my higher power began to build, I didn't need to crush you anymore because I began to find my own worth. I found that worth through service and realizing that I could put some good into the world. And when I got to experience that like sunlight of the spirit, I didn't need to crush you anymore to feel better about myself. In fact, it even would allow me at times to like see those other dark places of other people and like find compassion. And that was new. So for the uninitiated, because, you know, when I was first getting sober, what I did is I would, I mean, I went and downloaded some podcasts, I did some shit, you know, I was like, I got to get back into this recovery crap Mm -hmm. and all this other stuff. Um, You know, I would hear that kind of stuff and I'd be like, sounds like fucking mumbo jumbo to me. Like Mm -hmm. it really, like I would like, oh, I'm going to go to the program. You know, from what I remember when I was younger, okay, I got to be honest, 
some steps. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, I know I have to do a confession at some point. Just 12 you of know. them. Yeah, right. You know, you got to mention God every sixth yeah, word. Yeah, I think. Yeah, every, <laughs> yeah. Every sixth word of every second step. Anyway, so, um, so, but I think, you know, for the uninitiated, what you're describing is, you know, um, it, I mean, in, in like three words for me really were like uncover, discover, and discard, mm. right? You know, um, uh, you know, when, when it comes to talking about AA specifically, um, that's, you know, for the uninitiated of that too, it's like, you know, um, the, you know, a alcoholics has a, has a program of 12 steps, which really covers those three things for me. And the other thing that it also covers is there's two additional things on top of that. And you mentioned it, which is service. And then also the other side of that is, is unity. So what we're really talking about from a, uh, so, I, and I hear you say that you, you get to learn from others, like, you know, get to, to develop compassion. That's how I did. It was actually listening to others in the rooms and, you know, I started to care for them and, and the more that I cared for them, it's like I found out that I could care for myself. So, um, you know, I hear that coming through. And, and for you, that is, I mean, for the guy who is just downloading podcasts, looking to get fucking sober, and this is for you, Mike, in Nova Scotia, Wisconsin. Um, you know, just keep listening. Keep keep listening for these kind of tips and, 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 and the understanding. And you may not have the courage right now to, to get your ass off the couch and go to a meeting. But the fact is, is like at some point you probably should consider it. Um, if not, just go and fucking do it. But uh, but you know what Alex is talking about is is a longer process than thirty days. It's a longer process mm-hmm. than ninety days. It's you know I don't you know when did you feel comfortable in terms of your sobriety? It, you know after that, like how far? Oh, am I jumping ahead? No, no. Okay, sorry. <laughs> so. Help me understand. When did I feel comfortable with what? When did you feel comfortable having you know? You say, you know, one, two, three, switch sponsors, one, two, three, switch sponsors. You know, you're, um, you know, you're mad all the time. You're pissed off all the time. Mm. You know, at what point do you, you know, in your sobriety, do you go like, at, you know, whether, whether it be working the program, whether it be like a length of time, mm. whether it be, you know, I don't know, this is when I, you know, after X, I did change my life. When, okay. Yeah. I think that um, Early on, what kept me coming back, because the whole thing was so uncomfortable. I mean, my very first meeting, I showed up and, you know, I was a 19-year-old girl and I showed up and there was all these old dudes smoking cigarettes outside. And so, like, straight from the beginning, I was okay, like... I quit smoking, though, okay? I'm- yeah. <laughs> straight from the beginning, you know, it was uncomfortable. And um, on my very first meeting, I remember sitting down and it was a speaker meeting And this man said that every day he asked God for the desire to live more than he wanted to die and the desire to stay sober more than he wanted to drink. And like that was the moment that my soul took a breath, like that deep, deep place that felt like it had been holding its breath for so long, kind of just went, you know, and I remember thinking like, what would that be like to wake up and to have that desire to live? And um I came home that night and I told my family that I had found a home in Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was moments like that that had made the uncomfortability bearable, you know. And so um, the first year was super hard. You know, I was not one of those people that like got all the spiritual principles right off the bat. Like there was tons of times where I was hanging on to my seat and just didn't drink no matter what. And um, I want to say we're like, I finally feel like I started kind of like feeling comfortable in my own skin was um, probably about, I want to say, like my fourth year. I had really gone through, um, I hit that bottom sober. And um, that... Giggity. 
<laughs> I, I, I just hit a bunch of cones. That's how I, I did. Even. But um, I think that I finally came to a place where, like, I realized after that amount of time that people, places, and things were not going to keep me sober. And it, like, forced me into this, like, new space in my recovery where I was either going to die sober or I was going to, like, truly find a new way of life. And um, I sought my recovery harder than I ever had. And I was finally willing to take those suggestions that I wasn't willing to in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And um, I think like right now is just, it's the best I've ever been. Awesome. Yeah. And that's a really good, I like that you specifically mentioned what that, that guy said Mm -hmm. about having that desire to, what was it to be, to live more than to die Mm -hmm. something. And And the desire to stay sober more than to Because if you're, if you're like, it's sort of what Carl was alluding to a moment ago, like with the cynical side of hearing uh, someone talk about the process of recovery. And if you're like myself or Carl, you might hear those kind of descriptions and be like, oh, you just couldn't think of anything real to say. But no, the thing is, is that people, when they make those descriptions, they are talking about an actual process in a meaningful way. It's just that you're not going to understand that until you've gone through that process or a similar process, because I don't think just because, you know, like if you're in a different program besides AA, I think you could still relate. Yeah. yeah. Because I mean, cause there's a ton of old life. guys smoking cigarettes there, too. Right. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Just... And bothering the 19 year old girl walking in. Yeah. yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah they're always our... looking at you and yeah, stuff. They're actually on the payroll of the club. We yeah. got to keep an image. But uh, we're going to continue going around and we're going to throw it over to Ellen to see what she would like to follow up with Alex on. Hmm. How about blamed others for everything I did, never took responsibility? I think that kind of goes into that inadequate perception of reality. Um, I think that, and the scary thing is, is like that didn't just follow me in my drinking that continued in my sobriety, you know, again, like thinking like I would get sober and everything would just change, you know, that, I wasn't the problem. Alcohol was the problem, you know? And um, I remember, I'm, I'll actually speak to it in sobriety. I remember going to a sponsorship meeting and um, I was arguing with my sponsor about something, right? She didn't do something. And um, she was trying to talk sense to me to help me see the truth. And I just wouldn't fucking have it. And I remember my grand sponsor leaning over to her and telling her, stop talking. She believes what she's saying. And it, crushed me because I knew that that was just the truth in my life like it didn't matter who it was or what I had done I just I was completely incapable of saying I was wrong that wasn't in my language God, that's a that's a really fucking mean way of doing that. If you're that grand sponsor, I know, that's, right? that's great. Like, he just wow. doesn't get it. I got to remember that to be like, <laughs> just lean over and be like, dude, dude. Her eyes are turning brown. She's so full of shit. Like seriously, we can't, we can't, we can't cross this river. Like it'll take us down. So it's like just, just to give up to be like they're so delusional. But actually, no. There's there's worth in that. Like because then you're sitting there and they're what they're displaying is we cease fighting everyone everything because they see where you're at and that it's like this isn't a matter of fact anymore Mm -hmm. it's like that this has gone beyond the realm of you know relevant information and evidence and has gone into just you know one of those escapes from reality that we have where we're guarding ourselves or we're guarding something and that's more important than actually engaging with reality see but Somebody who's not in recovery and just like me in my in my disease, if that were to happen, I would immediately just turn around and go, that person's just full of shit. 
or that person's just fucking angry or they're jealous of me or whatever the fuck it was that I created in my own head about that person's statement. So if that would have happened to me active in my disease, I could immediately just dismiss everything you just said. And right? I think that's, and like, that's the difference, though, is like having that when I was drinking, I couldn't even see that until I got sober, because when I was drinking, I was around people who were doing exactly what I did. You know, but being sober and surrounding myself in this fellowship of people who I knew genuinely loved me and cared about my well-being even when I didn't and the people who loved me enough to tell me the truth instead of spare my fucking feelings when they're telling me that, even though it hurt and I was angry and I was pissed, it definitely made me question, like, am I wrong? And that was never something that I had done before. They, they don't get anything and they don't they don't lose anything by saying that to you. They right. They, so there's... There's almost no reason other than because they care, mm-hmm. right? Because in this in these situations, when we're in this recovery situation, I mean, these people don't. I don't pay them nothing. They don't get no money from me. You know, it's like I don't know. I'm sleeping with them, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows down the road? You know, whatever. But you know what I mean? It's like so. There is no. The, the ultimate result is that they obviously they care for me in a different way mm-hmm. that I don't. You know, they're not getting anything from me. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah, and it might sound. Because before I used to, when I was in very early recovery and people would talk about, you know, kind of confronting others and saying like, hey, I'm observing something you're doing and I'm kind of worried about you. Now, if you're not a part of the recovery community, that that might just sound like being a busybody of like someone just sticking their nose in their business where it doesn't belong. But after you've been in this for a while, there are a few of those people hanging around. Oh, yeah, certainly. Like there's definitely plenty of busybodies. But then you also have that core group of people like if you've been around, you get to know some people that say it out of a place of just genuine, really compassion. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. like you said, I get nothing out of confronting somebody or someone doesn't get anything out of confronting me and saying, hey, by the way, because it might sound like they're just criticizing you. But really what they're doing is making an effort to say you're standing on railroad tracks and there's a train coming. <laughs> and so we Woo-hoo, take it. Yeah, <laughs> it's like because. If what sounds like being a busybody, it's like, no, this is serious, because if you've ever witnessed someone, and I'm sure we all have, that has talked themselves out of sobriety, that it doesn't happen. We say sometimes people give the impression it happens overnight. I've met people where they almost become a caricature of themselves, Hmm. like everything changes about them, the tone of their voice, the intonation of their voice, the way they address me, the information they share with me, like you all of a sudden it feels like you're talking to a stranger and then you hear they drank. So Mm -hmm. it's like, it's not the drink that got you. I mean, yes, the drink got you drunk, but you start seeing this stuff happen and this ribbons unfurling before you long before that happens. Mm -hmm. And from what, you know, so I I just think that's an important point of that. It's like, it's, we're not just up in each other's business because we have nothing better to do. Well, hopefully, but (sighs) There's also an actual valid reason behind it. Yeah. Mic drop, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so what about you, Carl? What would you like to follow up with Alex about? Um, hold on. I think I, yeah, I'm already like, you know, asking questions. Um, so um, uh, hold on a second. Let me go. Uh, let's go to um, you know, because I'm really more interested in the um, and I think you already touched on it, but uh, I guess the self-esteem portions of it because and and not not the you know i'm a piece of shit because i'm a piece of shit and i like being a piece of shit because being a piece of shit is awesome Mm -hmm. but um 
mm-hmm. but the other side of that coin. So, you know, I walked into um, sobriety and I didn't understand that I thought I was a piece of shit. I really didn't. Like, I, I mean, I was convinced I was. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I, uh, I needed to, to not be. And I didn't know how to do that. How did you, like I said, when you feel more comfortable, right? So, and you talked about, you alluded to it when you're talking about uh, service, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and those are the kinds of things that I understood for myself that helped me to feel a little bit better about being me, right? You know, I wasn't the giant fucking piece of shit. You know, I did the four-step moral inventory, quote unquote. Uh, you know, I did the the inventory in, and in black and white, I, I wasn't the monster I thought I was, right? In black and white. But without that list in black and white, I was a complete fucking monster. And, uh, and you couldn't convince me otherwise. So so how do you, how did you deal with that? What did you do to, uh, uh, I guess, find self-esteem? What did you? Well, I like that you shared it that way because I think that's something that was really important, especially in the beginning, was looking for the similarities in the rooms and not the differences. Because I thought that even in sitting in a room full of other alcoholics, I still thought I was the worst person in the world. And it was actually Steve. I tell this story all the time. But he was the one, I was in my first 30 days, and he had shared that when he was new, he was he would like think about people he really loved dying so it would be a good enough excuse to go drink. And I remember going, oh my God, me too. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it was like the transparency of like, okay, I'm human. Other people think like I do, even when it's unhealthy, you know? And other people like have done the things that I've done. And so I think like the self-esteem part and realizing that I'm really not greater than and I'm not less than I'm just a part of was like that first building block of like okay I can be honest and I can be transparent and maybe just maybe if I can do that then I like might find a new way of life and um you know I would hear things like if you want to gain self-esteem then you have to do self-esteemable acts you know and what recovery has done for me is because I have a mean mind you know and um what recovery has done for me is it has helped me create evidence in my life on the outside so that when my brain is going and telling me what a piece of shit I am, I can look at what's really happening in my life because people who are a complete piece of shit don't have a loving partner. They don't have a group of little sponsees who will like allow you into their life. They don't have um, a job where they're of service to people. Like, you know what I mean? So when I can snap out of my own shit for a second and look around like the evidence is contrary to my thought and that has been so important um you know and recovery gave me that taught me to do things like go to H&I which is you know hospitals and institutions we get to bring panels there we get to do all these things and you know I remember um I'll share this story my sponsor um I was calling her. I had just flown home from halfway across the country and I was in a really deep, dark place. You know, those alcoholics with the high highs and the low lows. And I was in that low low and I called her. And um, that was the smallest bit of willingness that I had at that moment was to just pick up the phone and tell her, like, I've been in bed for two days and I can't get out and I don't know what to do. And um, for anyone, <laughs> I'm a I'm a Batman fanatic. I love Batman. And so the suggestion that she gave Steve, me... Steve, do not do the impression of Batman. I'm telling you right now, there'll be no Batman impressions right now. Moving on. I'm Batman. <laughs> I told you they were shit. I told you it was the worst impression ever. I had dressed it up in leather. Damn it. Damn it, Steve. Come on, Robin. My young boy side companion. I do a mean Batman. Yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. It's the worst. So... 
So <laughs> the suggestion that she gave me was to put on my Batman onesie because I have a Batman onesie and to go bring her sick dad lunch. And I remember her telling me this and like it wasn't cute and it wasn't funny at the time. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like not one part of me wanted to fucking do that. And um, but I was willing. I was willing to do the things that I didn't understand, especially when I was in pain. So I got up and I put on this stupid Batman onesie. <laughs> I go to walk out the door and my hand's on the door handle and I think it's kind of hard to be sad when you're Batman. So I open up the door <laughs> and I get in my car and, you know, I go through McDonald's and I get breakfast. And I'm driving down the car and all these people are looking at me and there's this little boy hanging out the window on the freeway just like, oh my God, Batman. You know, and I'm like, fuck, this is awesome. You know, and so I get to her dad's house and... I give him breakfast and like this moment occurred and I realized that like I was doing something good just for that moment. Like I was putting good into the world. The past two days of like all that thinking and like the complete faith that like I just was better off not being here had completely like been set aside just for that moment Mm. because I could put something good into the world. And so I think that slowly over a period of time doing those things over and over and over again it's helped build that self-esteem you know um i think one of the best lessons that i've ever been taught is that i get to choose who i want to be in my recovery you know um alcohol chose for me in my disease but um when i'm willing to just take that next indicated step and i'm willing to just do something that's uncomfortable and that's the beauty about recovery is like we we're talking about comfortability and i was taught that growth comes from a place of being uncomfortable mm-hmm. right so usually when i'm uncomfortable i'm headed in the right direction it's when everything starts feeling okay that um i might need to pick up the phone and call somebody yeah and that's the worst footed thing like i really love the idea of this of that segment because that's exactly what that touches on mm-hmm. because if you're not feeling some amount of pain in, in, in recovery then you're just fucking you're just sitting on the sidelines so yeah. that's what I tell Robin <laughs> <laughs> I said no Robin don't worry Robin if it hurts that means you're doing good <laughs> alright Batman that's enough thank you for joining the show today disgusting so Alex do you ever get tempted oh wait by the way I just I do want to say I, I'm really impressed because I love that. I love the fact that you're in touch with that stuff and that, you know, especially that, you know, that you're, um, that that's a really positive message for anybody listening is that, you know, the fact is, is being yourself is fucking hard. It's mm-hmm. fucking hard enough to be yourself, but to do that and to put on a Batman costume to boot <laughs> yeah. is pretty damn cool, right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I that is, and that, and that, right. I mean, uh, um, you know, I, I I read all these other self-help books and I don't read them because I'm like really interested in practicing what they preach. If I practiced everything that they preach, I would have no fucking time in my day because, you know, whatever. But I'll tell you what, they all have these principles about them. They all kind of relate. They all kind of go back into AA, same kind of things. And it really becomes like this, you know, um, you know, uh, being yourself, being authentic. And we talk about that in recovery, but rarely do we have the attempt or try to to do it and, and just the fact that you grabbing that doorknob i could totally picture that in my mind and i go oh my god that's just like that's you just going like i'm gonna do this because this is who i am yeah right? and that's i really love that it was yeah really really and it was through those moments too like you know there's this this quote that we say in aa and it's to thine own self be true and i remember coming into the room and just going like but i don't know who that is mm-hmm. you know and it yeah. was through moments like that where i got to discover okay yeah. that authentic self Where's a Batman mask? So. <laughs> I'm Batman. <laughs> well, I have a question. So do you do you ever get tempted to be the mean girl again? 
Um, I don't want to say I get tempted to be the mean girl again, but I mean, anger is very much something that lives within me. And what I've learned is that there's this really fine line between passion and aggression, and they share the same energy. And I know that you guys, <laughs> you guys probably remember <laughs> when I was um, new in recovery, I would come into meetings and I would be so aggressive with like things that I was sharing, especially if I had a feeling, God forbid. <laughs> and, um, you know, then the next day I'd come in and I'd be in the sunlight of the spirit and be so passionate, but it <laughs> felt the same. And so it was often misdirected for me, you know? And so even today, I think what I've learned is that when I feel that anger creeping up, like being able to pause, I didn't even know that I was capable of doing that when I got here. Like, that's a real thing. Like I actually get to stop and choose like, okay, I'm feeling this. Where, where am I going to direct it? You know, I don't have to pretend that it's non-existent, but I don't want to be that mean girl because I'm feeling insecure. You know, I don't know if I answered the question. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's so awesome. All right. So now we've went over your skills and strengths. We've got we've got a lot of stuff to cover. You put a lot of good stuff on here. So which out of you've got a lot of really good related experiences here. Which one would you like to touch on? I think, you know, I can talk about the cruise ship a little bit. I, um, so I guess I can talk through all of them really quick. Okay. Um, so I was kind of, I guess, born into alcoholism without really knowing it. My dad died an alcoholic death and my mom remarried another alcoholic. And, um, I, I saw the effects of alcoholism, but I didn't know that anybody was like getting loaded because I was a kid, you know, and, um. I, I know that when I started drinking and I saw my own effects of alcoholism, it was really easy to piece the piece it together. And, um, you know, my mom shared with me a little bit once I got older about like what was really happening in our home. And um, I just thought people were like pissed off and messed up all the time. I didn't know that like drinking and drugging had anything to do with it. And um, when I, you know, I had five short years in my act of alcoholism and, um, you know, it, it talks about that in some of our literature. I was gone with beyond recall within a few years. And um, I remember, you know, I was really smart and I had totally thrown away school because I stopped going because I wanted to get drunk every day. And um, after my dad had died, my mom put me in dance so that I could have like some kind of emotional outlet. And so I did that my whole life. And um, I had thrown school away. I had kind of thrown relationships away by the time I was in like my later years in high school. And um, I got this really awesome opportunity. I had auditioned for Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines as a performer and I made it. And I remember getting on this plane and, you know, everyone had kind of like I could see the effects produced and I was it was starting to cause problems in my life. And I remember getting on this plane ready to fly to Florida and going, okay. Where I'm going, nobody knows me. So who do I want to be when I get there? You know, still no concept of like authentic self or any of that. Like I was just like chameleon. I needed to be who you wanted me to be so you would love me. And um, I got there and, you know, I decided that I wasn't going to drink when I was there because I really didn't want to screw this up. I was going to get to go to Spain and it was just going to be awesome. And two days there, um, it was my birthday and I got blacked out drunk and tried to fight my castmates. And the next day, I don't know. (laughs) How many were there? 
the world of the world of Caribbean cruise uh, dancing is a very rough initiation process. <laughs> but the next day, I had you know I got each of the girls a yellow rose and wrote them a note about how sorry I was. And <laughs> such a kind of god. There's, there's nothing alarmingly psychotic about that at all. <laughs> do you mind if I do it again tomorrow? <laughs> Well, exactly. You know, that's exactly the point, because one more time, I believed what I was doing. I really believed that, you know, I, I cared for these people. I wanted to be a good castmate. And I believed what I was writing when Go I wrote these letters. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, that I, I would never do this again and that I respected them. And I was really sorry. I really was sorry for what I had done, yeah, yeah. you know, and um, and I get this image of you showing up with a new personality being like, hello, my name is Ali. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the Caribbean cruise. <laughs> For some reason, in a very deep manly voice, which must have been very alarming to the people you were working with. I guess it's better than the Batman voice. <laughs> well, actually, when I got there, it was it's funny because they I remember the very first day everyone thought I was super quiet because I wouldn't say anything because I wasn't drunk yet. You know, and I just like didn't know how to interact with other human beings. You know, like I saw this meme once on Facebook that said, um, awkward people when they get compliments and someone's like, oh, you look so pretty. And the other person's like, happy birthday. Like, that's me when I'm sober. <laughs> it's awkward and it's weird and I don't know how to talk, you know. And um, that night we had went out and got drunk and it was awesome and I tried to fight everybody. So really quickly, like they had decided who I was, but I still thought that it was like up for grabs and I could kind of decide who that was going to be. <laughs> Guys, I'm yeah. just trying things out, you know. Yeah. Do you want me to knock you out or do you want me to yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, at that point, like we hadn't even left for Spain yet. We were still in Florida, like rehearsing for the ship. And, um, you know, they had a meeting with me and the captain because of my drinking. And, you know, I made a deal with them. I told them that I would go to therapy and everything would be fine. And I paid a lot of money to lie. And it was great. And, um, <laughs> you know, I told this therapist all about me, except nothing to do with my drinking, you know, or nothing about you. Now, did you intent <laughs> yeah, yeah. did you intentionally leave out the drinking, or did you just not know to say anything, or, or it didn't occur to you that it might be a problem? I think it was so much easier for me to believe that I was just so screwed up than to even like acknowledge that alcohol was really the problem because I felt like I had been in pain my whole life, you know. And um, drinking was a secondary concern. Yeah, I mean, alcohol was my solution. It was never my problem. Yeah. You know, at least at that point, like it was something that made me breathe. And um, so this had gone back and forth. And finally, we get on the ship about three months later to go to Spain. And um, I am just drinking and drinking and drinking. My cast hates me now, you know. And It is a cruise ship, just to be fair. Right. It yeah. is a cruise ship. I just I think it's. Fair. Yes. It's, you can drink all you, you have want. have a drink. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there's this. uh. It's called the back deck where, like, the cast can go and get drunk. And so I was there every night. And, um, you know, one night we got off um, in Lisbon and we got out and it was like the heavens had opened up. Like, it was just bar after bar after bar after bar after bar. And it took four people to carry me back onto the ship that night. And I remember – I, like, vaguely remember coming to and the captain being there. And it w I was a fucking train wreck. And I looked at him and I said, I'm just really cold. Like, I don't <laughs> – <laughs> but so they had given me a, a final warning and at that point you know i'd been talking to my mom a lot and like every week my mom would have a hey, different... how many warnings did you get 
I don't know. I was drunk. Just, there was a I final remember one. the final one. This is the yeah. final one coming up. <laughs> I remember the final one. Um, but I was talking to my mom a lot, and every week she had a different diagnosis for me. You know, mm-hmm. and by the, my mom's not a psychologist; she's a accountant. But she had a different diagnosis every week, and so like I think that she just wanted a solution to what was happening to me as much as I did, and um, so. I remember my last drink there was I had gone to the back of the ship one night, swore I wasn't going to drink. I was just going to go for the party. And someone had offered me a shot and I said no. But then they asked again. And I still said no. But then they asked that third time and I couldn't say no three times. And I swore I was only going to have one. And um, one led into two, two turned into three. And anyway, I blacked out and I was supposed to have a show the next day. And I remember coming to the next day. And like running to the ship with no shirt, one heel on, got to the ship, ran out on stage, drunk, tried to dance. It was horrific. And the security had to come and grab me. And they took me to this like little jail that they have in their ship. And they made me do a breathalyzer. It's called the brig. <laughs> Thank you, Carl. How do you know this, Carl? Oh, I know what it's called. I've been on a cruise before. And uh, it's like they just hogtie Alex and put her on a dinghy that's being towed behind the boat. They're like, that's Caribbean cruise ship. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And uh, they made me blow into the breathalyzer and I blew a 0.24. And this was the next nice. day. Oh. You know? And um, that would have been an amazing show, though, to see that <laughs> everyone's coming out and dancing, doing great. And then this half naked girl just comes fucking one heel. Yeah. Just ripping ass on stage and yeah. like having a seizure and then they drag her off be like that was fucking amazing yeah when's the next time they do that encore <laughs> probably woke up all the old guys <laughs> that are there with their wives like they're like half falling asleep they're like what what oh <laughs> yeah yeah i'm sure it can have been very pretty you know and uh they quarantined me in my cabin for a week until we could get back to land and fired me without alcohol without alcohol and that was horrible but i remember there was one night where like i got one of the guys to like go to the back deck and like sneak a case in and he got me and it was just like my saving grace like i was so grateful just to have that beer you know and um i remember yeah pretty much (laughs) i did the same thing with vodka and rum and oh never (laughs) Yeah. yeah I really didn't even like beer that much, but I mean, like, whatever was going to make me feel different, I was going to drink it. It didn't matter. Yeah, isn't it crazy? You're, I mean, you're sitting in the your room alone for a whole week. I mean, that's like, what, like solitary. And yeah. then the only thing you can think of is, like, where's my next drink? Like, yeah, okay, I got fired, whatever, or... Oh, whatever, you know, I don't have my dream job anymore, but where's that damn drink? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's still hope. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, as amazing as that story is, the cruise ship story, there's one that I know that's even better and oh, it's sh- the next part of ours. I love Alex's I love Alex's <laughs> smacking bottom story. Hey no. It's not about that. It's not about that. That's a different show. Whoa, whoa. But we need, vi- we need video for that. Yeah. I didn't bring the equipment. I know. So it's you that that one is sober pods free, but for that one you gotta pay. Sorry, <laughs> But for what led you to sobriety? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna start with uh, the first couple words and let Al's take it from here. This story is amazing. After having an alcohol induced psychosis, so I'll just let her take it from there. Okay, so <laughs> um, I had came back home from the ship 
And I think that's where like I had kind of just decided that I needed a desperate life change. And um, I had tried a couple other things to get sober and none of them had worked. And once those things didn't work, it was just kind of on like it was really the beginning of the end. And that's when I found I found myself drinking every day um, because I could. And I remember I went to a friend's house that night and I remember having this idea that like I couldn't be angry before I drank because if I was angry and then I drank, it would make it worse. So I remember trying to convince myself that I was really happy so that I could then get drunk and be a happy drunk, even though that never happened. And um, I always thought I was a happy drunk. Yeah. <laughs> My wife says I'm not. So I'm just saying. I thought I was. though. And um, so I got drunk and I blacked out and um I remember, like, I had an alcohol-induced psychosis, and at that time, I was really into the Hunger Games. I was reading all the books, and in my psychosis, I was Katniss Everdeen, and I had been training for 12 years dancing for the Hunger Games, <laughs> and that night, I had, like, beat my boyfriend. The My roommate who was living with me at the time had, like, put me in her car and drove me to my house and was telling my mom, like, I don't know what's wrong with her, and... um. My, I like went through this death that didn't happen. I thought my sister had died in the Hunger Games, and I don't have a sister. Um, <laughs> but I like sobbed. My mom held me for like five hours in her room while I just like uncontrollably sobbed because I really thought that my sister had died. And my mom finally got up to go to the bathroom. And when she came out, I had my roommate choke slammed against the wall because I thought she was trying to kill me. And um, in the Hunger Games. In the Hunger Games. And my mom had to pry her off and, um, you know, she had her leave. And I remember vaguely, um, it was probably about 7 a.m. now, like my mom had stayed up with me all night long and for a long time didn't know I was drinking. She just thought that I had like a complete break from reality. And um, I remember coming to in the garage, we were smoking a cigarette and she looked at me and she said, do you remember Anthony? Anthony's my little brother. And. It was like at that moment, like all reality came back into play. And I realized that like for the last 12 hours, I was just living in this world that wasn't real. And it was the most terrifying experience of my life. I had no idea that that could ever even happen. And if it did, it wasn't going to happen to me. And I swore I would never drink again. And um, that's that story you know <laughs> i drank again <laughs> yeah, yeah. well when you tell it like that it's not as funny <laughs> i was just picturing her as katniss from the hunger games but drunk so you're trying to say i'm katniss but it just comes out i'm cat. cat. start meowing at people hunger weird. like alex is a hungry cat <laughs> you trying to kill me <laughs> and your mom would you say oh god my sister's dead and it's like well this is a good news bad news situation the good news but she, she doesn't have a sister. Yeah. The good news is she's yeah. not dead, but the bad news is because you don't have a sister. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, I, I just you're right. I, the whole psychosis of alcoholics, mm-hmm. like, it does not really occur that that is something. But even though, mm-hmm. like, I had this, you know, in my DTs, I had a black demon visiting me. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, it's like, you know, but I wasn't drinking at the time. You were actually. Yeah. It was from drinking that this happened to you. I right? still believe that black demon was your wife. <laughs> just, just hiding in she's the shadows. She's going to cry because of you. You know that. I'm going to have to console her. She's going she's gonna to listen to this next year. And, and it's going to be mad at me. 
No, she's going to skip forward on the play button yeah, when like, you oh, start fucking talking. Steve again. Uh, she hears you and she's like, oh, skip forward. <laughs> Let's get to someone that really works a program here. Yeah, yeah. Do, 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 do. <laughs> so, um, so what are we talking about? So was Katniss. that the bottom? Psychosis? Psychosis. No, the bottom was, um, so I swore I'd never drink again. And I didn't drink for two days, which was like a record for me. And um, I think I was still, that was the first time where like, I didn't try to drown out what I did with alcohol more. Um, I was just so scared that that happened. And um, two days later, I was hanging out with a couple friends and they really wanted to go to this club. And, you know, I had said no. And I finally like was getting to that place where I could say no once. But then when people kept asking, like eventually I would just cave into whatever it is that they wanted to do. And so we went to this bar and I remember like, you know, I was still underage. So I was having to get smashed in the car before I went in. And, um, I remember my friend looking at me and saying, hurry up, I like drunk Alex better. Mm. And that just like validated all the self-hate that I had lived in. Like it wasn't okay living in my own skin sober. And um, so I had one in the club that night. We got super drunk and blacked out. Nothing like super crazy happened, you know. And um, she, I crashed at her place and she tried to bring me home the next day. And I walked in the door and my mom said, you either need to pack your things or you need to get sober. And so I started packing my things. And um, I, you know, I was packing my clothes and all this stuff, and I went to go look for my cell phone, and um, my mom took it, right? She paid for it, makes sense. And um, she wouldn't give it back to me, and that rage unleashed on her. And um, I remember my little brother, who was 11 years old at the time, he stood in between me and my mom, and he looked at me, and he said, Allie, just leave. And it was in that moment, looking in his eyes, that was like that moment of clarity, like everything just snapped and I could no longer manipulate what I was into something prettier. And, um, you know, he was like that last person who didn't look at me like I was a total fuck up. You know, to my little brother, I was still his big sister. I still walked on water. And to have him be so brave and 11 and stand between me and my mom and tell me to leave just totally shattered it was that incomprehensible demoralization and um I still at that point it wasn't like okay let's get sober all I remember was dropping my things and walking out the front door and like I'd made this decision that I was going to walk in front of the next car that came down the street because I didn't know what else to do and um my uncle who was living with us at the time ended up being in that car and he turned to the corner and he looked at me and he said please just get in and I sat down and um, he made a phone call to someone he knew in recovery and um, they dropped me off at the meeting that night and I really can't remember a whole lot of what was said other than what I shared with you guys and I remember like for the first time being able to re- relate with like Someone was finally saying out loud how I felt like they gave me the language to articulate the pain that I was in. And I had no clue how to make that stop, you know, and um, this woman came up to me in my very first meeting and she gave me a big book and um, she told me to meet her at the same place the next day. And I did. And I've been able to stay ever since. Wow. That is, I, I remember hearing you talk about that before with your little brother mm-hmm. and just imagining that scenario of standing there and seeing, you know, a small child mm-hmm. look at you and actually even the, it's like even an 11 year old knows this has gone too far. 
Like this is just ridiculous. Like that is a like that's it's like kind of it gives me goosebumps. Like just thinking about that, what that could have looked like. Obviously, you know, none of us were there, but that is a very powerful story. Um, so. We also have how you got sober, and obviously, like we've been talking about the whole time, you came into Alcoholics Anonymous and worked in the steps. So I think we can go ahead and jump forward to your recovery topic, which uh, you would like to talk about love and tolerance and the program of AA versus the fellowship of AA. So which which one would you like to start with? Probably the love and tolerance. I think that that's really important. Now, why the fuck should I be tolerant of all those drunk pieces of shit? That smell bad. They have halitosis. One of them's named Carl. Damn it, Carl. So what what relevance does love and tolerance have to sobriety? I think that I was so used to being that person that was unwelcomed. I was so used to being that person that people looked at with disgust. Um, that when I came into the rooms, you know, I I was so fucking angry. You know, and I would come in and I would tell people how angry I was about having to be an alcoholic at 19. I was so fucking upset because they tell me the shit like, oh, you're so lucky, you're so young. And I'd be like, fuck you, you're going to die soon. I have to do this the rest of my life, <laughs> you know? And um, like there was no part of me that was grateful to fucking be in AA, you know? I at thought 19. At 19. Uh, I can't blame you there. <laughs> you know, and um, I'd get pissed off every time that I saw a similarity because it just validated that I was supposed to be there. I remember you saying that in a meeting once. <laughs> like people say how great it is I'm young. I'm just like, well, you're going to die soon. You don't have to be so <laughs> Sober that long, blah, blah, blah. I was like, I was like, God bless her. I'm so glad she's sober. Yeah, you know, Steve got to see a lot of that. You know, Steve got to see me in my first fist fight in recovery. It was a good one. Yeah. And it was. Middle I just got. In, yeah, I just got in the AA triangle tattooed on me like four hours before. <laughs> Went and I got in a fight, and it was just like, um, you know, I threw chairs in meetings because this old timer told me to get my feet off of it. So I like. You know, it was just this, like, bomb. And um, I remember I'd come in and tell people, like, call your fucking sponsor if you have a problem with me. And these old-timers would look at me, and, it like, the grace in their eyes wouldn't change. They'd sit back, and they'd just, like, smile. And that would piss me off even more because I wasn't getting what I wanted out of you. I wanted you to react to me so it could validate that I wasn't supposed to be here. And had anybody done that, I don't know that, like, I would have stayed. You know, there was so much grace and so much tolerance shown to me in that time. Yeah. That's, I was wondering, I was like, I'm wondering how this is going to get to love and tolerance. <laughs> like, so far, it's like, talk about love and tolerance while these fucking old people. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. It's like, oh, there yeah. it is. Yeah. But no, that's true. And it's, it's like, if you're new and you're coming into any sort of recovery, you might be alarmed or confused, I should say, as to how unsurprised or unreactive people mm -hmm. in recovery can be to someone completely losing their shit. Like I remember being in a meeting once and a guy shared about, he had just done a fourth step and he talked about, he was just talking about it. And then all of a sudden he just said, this shit doesn't work and it's stupid and you're all going to die drunk and something. And he storms out of the meeting and it's just kind of quiet for a minute or two. And then everyone politely clapped and we moved on. <laughs> <laughs> That was it. Like everyone was just like, "Oh, is he? He's done. I guess he's not coming back." Okay. All right. Yay! Thank you for sharing. Probably Yay. after the meeting, they're like, "Oh, good share, man. Good share." Yeah, I really related with you, man. That was good stuff. That was good stuff. 
well, coming back. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it speaks to what Alex is talking about, that it's like, you're not the first person to lose your shit in here. It's like, it's yeah. kind yeah, of expected. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and there was moments too where like, you know, I think love looks a little differently for everybody, you know? And like, I had people who were really kind to me in the rooms that were willing to be gentle with my soul. And I just, I was just that angry kid that needed a hug. You know, I really did. And then, um, then I learned how to manipulate that. So then I would need the people whose love was like a little more hard, you know? And, um, I remember being in a meeting once one more time, you know, spewing off about my bullshit and this old timer walked up and he handed me a broom and a dustpan in the middle of the meeting. And he said, why don't you go sweep up cigarettes outside till you're not so fucking pissed anymore. And I went out. <laughs> I went out. I was outside for two hours. I was fucking mad. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show him. Yeah. I'll fucking clean yeah. all the cigarette butts. Yeah. And I had no concept of like what that had to do with recovery. And it, after a while, you know, I was sitting out there sweeping the cigarette butts up. And I realized that. For every cigarette butt that I sweeped up, it meant that there was a member inside of the rooms hearing the message, and I, it was immediately pre- replaced with gratitude, you know, and that was something, like, that was love and tolerance for me in the room, not get the fuck out, not you don't belong here, but let me give you the next action to take till you can pull your own head out of your ass. Ooh. All right. So, what about the program of AA versus the fellowship of AA? Now, that one that's a mouthful. There's a lot to cover there. So how would you like to take that one on? Well, I think that, um, you know, especially in the beginning, I was so grateful for, um, you know, we talk about fair-weathered friends, you know, and I had a lot of those in my disease, you know, people that I could just get loaded with but not really share, like, what was happening in my heart and in my mind. And when I came in, it was so attractive, this fellowship of people who like I could just call day or night and say, I'm fucked up right now. Or even to just share like the good moments with like, I remember the first time that I saw a real sunrise and sobriety and I was like, holy shit, how many of these have I missed? (laughs) You know? And, um, that, that was really beautiful in the beginning, but eventually like for me, the fellowship was like a bandaid because I wasn't working any steps. I wasn't doing anything to actually change, you know? And um, the thing is, is like, if all I have is the fellowship, I mean, on our best day, we're fallible humans, Mm -hmm. you know? So if all I have is the fellowship, the fellowship is going to fail me. The program will never fail me, you know? And every time, like whether there's been people there or not, and I've been willing to work the program, like I've been able to stay sober and sometimes even sane, you know? And um, sometimes, sometimes. You know, I went through a really dark period in um, between that third and fourth year where, you know, I had three years of recovery and I found myself in a bathtub ready to take my own life. And um, I, I had stopped working the program and only been involved in the fellowship, you know. And when I came back home, I was really isolated. Um, you know, I, I had moved. I didn't really have the fellowship that I had once had around. And um, it kind of came to that point where I was either going to chase recovery in a way that I had never done, work the steps in a way that I had never been willing to, and um, been honest in a way that I didn't know I was capable of or I was going to die, you know. Wow. So what uh, what do you take from that, Ellen? But what, what sort of things would you like to add to the recover- difference between the recovery and the fellowship after hearing Alex? Um, I think Alex hit it straight on, uh, explained it very well. Um, I... Uh, I totally understand that, you know, people do let you down. I mean, the the fellowship um, are made of people and, you know, we're infallible. We're not, you know, we're 
we're not perfect. And especially in recovery, we're de- definitely not perfect. Although I think re- people in recovery are more aware of that than maybe the normal population. I'm still trying to figure that out. But um, yeah, I I totally get that. Um, the place I had to get to was, you know, my higher power. You know, God, God never lets me down, even though it might feel like he's uh, letting disappointments happen in my life. You know, he he never lets me down. And that like that's the point that I had to get to because people have always failed me like all my life. So it was and and not all not always their fault because I had so many needs Mm -hmm. and I had so many wants and so many demands from them. They couldn't they just couldn't keep up, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like the high maintenance thing. Right. So. Um, they just couldn't keep up, and that's not their fault, you know. I'm just a pain in the ass. Like, <laughs> <you> <laughs> but um, I'm not saying you're a pain in the ass. Alex, oh no, I'm but. definitely a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I I'm I totally predict, get that. I'm gonna predict that as Alex's partner listens to this, he's he's gonna hear that part, and he's gonna be nodding furiously. <laughs> <laughs> but he knows better not to do it in front of her. <laughs> Stop nodding. She's in the room. Stop <laughs> nodding. <laughs> so, yeah, I totally get that. And, the, the I mean, the fellowship is amazing. I mean, uh-huh. starting out, that's that's what I feel newcomers need. They need mm-hmm. that fellowship. I mean, even if they don't jump into the steps right away, just having other people there that love on them, that, you know, understand what they're going through. I mean, you saw the proof today. I mean, that, that really helped because – we are used to getting kicked out of bars. We're getting kicked out of wherever. And, you know, pretty soon you just kind of look forward to it because you're like, well, it's going to happen. Well, how do I want to make it happen this time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, let me mix this up, this Groundhog Day. Like, how can I mix this up? <laughs> make it much more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah this time I just how many more people can yeah. I piss yeah. off? Because, you know, last time it was five. Maybe I could do six this time. <laughs> Maybe I could beat up seven people instead of just three. <laughs> Bring in the dance line one more time. <laughs> so we're going to move into um, uh, the end. This is the end. You know, no, actually, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd like to stretch this out. You know, Alex, Can we I say mean- goodbye to Batman? <laughs> <laughs> I'm always with you. <laughs> if you know where to look. Batman, are you wearing a onesie? <laughs> I'm wearing a smile. <laughs> Boy, what happened to you, Batman? What happened to you? So, I, I to wrap up. I mean, we we kind of have done this a couple times. Is like, um, you know, and actually, I expect more out of you, Alex. I really do. Uh, you know, in terms of recovery, right? Because it's really, imp- I mean. One of the things that uh, we, we're always talking about our shit shows, right? You know, mm-hmm. we're always talking about, you know, our drunk logs and all this other shit and all the shit that we did that was rabbit. I mean, moreover, like I, 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 what I, we try to do with this, these segments and how we're trying to work is we're trying to get more into recovery, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to get more into the solution and not being a problem. So um, how do you, um, what is your daily life like in terms of recovery and how do you like, how do you, um, how do you prepare to move forward? I know AA is a part of your, your thing and it, and it talks about an AA, so let's just be real about this. It says, you know, we live in today, but we don't put off preparing for 
tomorrow. These are the things that we do. We have to live our lives, right? Yeah. And this is the reality of it. We, you know, it's not just this fucking rosy. Oh, I go to fucking meetings and everything's yeah. fucking great, you know, because it's not. So, mm-hmm. how do you see yourself moving forward, moving in your recovery and your sobriety? What's mm-hmm. your plan for the for the future in that? Mm-hmm. How do you consider that? Well, I think that so I'll start with like how my my days start off now, and um, I think something that's really different is that. I get to wake up in the morning with a desire to live. And I think like that in itself. Like the old man. Yeah. (laughs) If that was all. So you're going to live like an old man? (laughs) (laughs) This is getting weird, folks. (laughs) Seriously, go ahead. I think that if that was all that I got out of recovery, I would be overpaid. And um, I've gotten so much more than that, though. So in my life right now... um, I always crack up when I tell people this, but I supervise two mental health facilities, which kind of blows my fucking mind. Do you know what I mean? So, like, people throw chairs in my facilities, and I'm like, I fucking get it. You know? Smile. <laughs> You're like, yeah, 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 go outside, pick up some yeah. cigarette butts, bitch. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And, um, you know, I have I have an absolutely incredible partner. He has eight years in the program, and, um, you know, we don't fight. We don't scream. We don't... Um, try to hurt each other you know he has his recovery and I have mine and that's really beautiful to be able to share the program but have unique relationships with our higher power and um you know I get to be of service I get to go to H&I I get to sponsor this like little tribe of sponsees that are just the most incredible human beings that I've ever met in my whole life and it's so baffling to me like the fact that I have the opportunity to be on the other side of what AA has given to me you know, I never thought in a million years that anybody would want what I had. And um, I don't know. I think that, you know, I was at a meeting recently and I heard someone say, you know, there's good days and there's great days. And good days are the days that you wake up on time and, um, you know, you get your coffee and you go to work and everyone's happy. And then there's great days where, like, you fucking wake up late, you spill the coffee, you don't get to work on time, everyone's in a pissy mood and you stay sober anyway. You know, and um, that's that's what my life is. And I think that, you know, moving forward, I was telling Ellen, you know, I'm in this space where I'm kind of looking at um, maybe transferring jobs. And I just went to this interview last week and AA has given me the tools to walk through these things without trying to self-will shit, you know. And, um, you know, I heard a speaker say that whenever she is looking at moving in a different direction, she asks her higher power, bless it or block it. You know, so that's part of my morning routine is I get to hit my knees and I get to ask my higher power, bless it or block it, you know, and um, I really do try to live my life one day at a time because I heard someone say once, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And um, (laughs) that's been true thus far. But um, as for right now, it's just, um, you know, I really love working in recovery. I love um, being able to be of service. That's where my heart finds its peace because I am that alcoholic that, um, can snap back into self-will, run riot really quickly. And the fact that I don't have to do that anymore. You know, Ellen had spoke on her episode about uh, reacting or responding instead of reacting. And the fact that I can walk through my life today and choose what I'm going to respond to kind of blows my mind. Like what I have today that I never had was that sense of ease and comfort that I used to get from a bottle. Like I now get that through a power that's so much greater than I am, you know, and um I don't really have too many plans other than continue to stay where I'm at and seek my higher power and continue to be of service. Because when I just focus on those things, like all that shit that happens on the outside is so far outside of my scope. And if I ask God for what I wanted, like I'd shortchange myself because what he gives me is so much bigger than that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, um, so I'll, I'll, often I always hear people say, "Oh, you know, this is giving me a life beyond my wildest dreams," mm-hmm. and I just go, no, "This is just this is a life I never even fucking could conceive." Yeah. Like, yeah. Never, never mind my dreams, right? It's just something I never, yeah. I never comprehended could be possible. So mm-hmm. that's you know always what it is yeah. for me. Well, for sure. I remember coming in and people saying things like that, too. And like when I first got sober, like my wildest dreams were like the car, the husband, the job, the house. Right. Like, Don't give me sex, that. Because I'm really all about the Right. And the crazy thing is, is like I got all of that in my recovery and I lost all of that in my recovery. And what it gave me was shit like integrity. I didn't even know that was something yeah, I wanted yeah, yeah. when I got here. You know, peace of mind. Totally undervalued. Yeah. Too. Especially 100%. when you're in early in sobriety. Like, uh-huh. you don't understand how important those things really are until yeah. it starts to weigh on your soul. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm interrupting again. <laughs> no, you're not interrupting. Uh, <laughs> so I think that was a good, uh, like, kind of closing question from Carl. Do you have any closing questions you'd like to bring up to Alex Ellen? So the um, the mental health facility that you manage, I, I just imagine that there's like dressers full of Batman onesies. <laughs> do you like do you like make them dress in them when they're misbehaving? <laughs> I don't, but I did decorate my office as the Batcave. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> I don't think there's any finer way to end than on that note. So uh, thank you again. Thank you so much for coming and joining us, Alex. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. This was a really good uh, interview. So uh, please subscribe to SoberPod on iTunes, Google Play, or Apple Podcasts. Wait, we didn't. Huh? We didn't ask Alex if she had anything she wanted to add. Oh, do you have anything you want to add, Alex? No, I think you covered it. Thanks, though. Okay. (laughs) Then there you go. And there you go. (laughs) And it's done. We do not have time, Batman. (laughs) So please subscribe to SoberPod on iTunes, Google Play, or Apple Podcasts. If you want to stay sober today, it also doesn't hurt to rate and review the show. How's that for integrity? Follow us on Twitter at SoberPod. Use the hashtag SoberPod shoutouts to tweet your recovery milestones and achievements for a shoutout on the show. Submit your worst footed stories by tweeting at SoberPod and use the hashtag worst footed. Like SoberPod on Facebook and don't forget to check out everything SoberPod at SoberPod.com. If you have any ideas for episode topics or would like to participate in an episode of SoberPod, visit SoberPod.com and message the show. So I think that's going to do it for us uh, this week. Does everyone want to say goodbye? Bye. Carl's protesting, so see ya. Bye.